Hello, and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. This week I spoke with Professor Paul Dolan. Paul is the author of Happy Ever After, Escaping the Myth of the Perfect Life. He is, although my script says, he head of department. He head of department. <laughs> this was written for Stone Age people. He head of department and professor of behavioral science. He's head of department and professor of behavioral science in psychological and behavioral science at the London School. And I don't think that's right either. It doesn't sound good, does it, Jen? Listen, he's head of department and Professor of Behavioural Science in Psychological and Behavioural Science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. This is such an awful sentence. I read that in front of him. and I felt like an absolute fool. And in a minute, when you listen to this podcast, listeners, viewers, however you see yourself, voyeurs, perverts, you'll hear how difficult I found it. Paul is also Chief Academic Advisor to the UK Government on how policymakers should value the impact of goods that are hard to measure, like health and education. I should have paid more attention to that, thinking about it now. Did you put any questions about that? But anyway, it was a good chat, and I can chat to him again. He's written a good book. He's a decent bloke. He's from Hackney. He's a good chap. So uh, we'll listen to him in a minute. I really liked him. He's a West Ham fan. But let's now listen to some... uh, promo from me about me sign up to my youtube channel follow me on tiktok because tiktok man is blowing up guy isn't it jen because a lot of my funny little riffs people the young people of tiktok love it um follow me on twitter instagram tiktok linkedin my name's russell brand i'm a comedian primarily okay now here are some uh, comments on the last podcast i done with bruce parry the anthropologist hear the comments that you've written Blair Dunko Russell thank you so much for your efforts and getting Bruce in yes thank you for noticing it was an effort having fo- have followed his work for years latterly showed his doc Tawai in my wee village hall in Scotland He's ta- he walks his talk inquisitive my thought is that his genuine respectful experiences of earth humans has taught him a very important lesson to benefit Mother Earth. I don't know where I'm going with this. To benefit Mother Earth as a whole. I will take her on board and act on his thoughts. I do wonder how he handles and approaches living back in the UK. I know me. <laughs> you must do, Blair Dunk. After my relative limited time spent with indigenous folk in their lands. Oh, go on, mate. I returned home and shortly after I'm very sad and angry at what I saw here. I'm still working on that one. Thanks again, Russell. Well, thank you, mate. How lovely that you've had those experiences. You should write and blog about that. I wonder how I'd get on with indigenous people. It'd probably be like when that lass out of bloody... uh, In a perfect world... Gogglebox. When that lass out of Gogglebox lived in a jungle in a terraced house. It'd be like that, wouldn't it? Well, I just mean... I struggle without a coffee machine. (laughs) Although, if it was in the Amazon, we'd have access to coffee and ayahuasca. So, perfect, although, you know, I'd have to really check whether it was okay for me to be having ayahuasca every day, all day with my coffee. Social engineering. Brilliant point, Russell. We are indeed propagandized to believe that selfish characteristics are favoured naturally. That comes up again today, mate. That comes up again, mate, today, with my man Paul Dolan, because he said something like human nature, and I was right on him, like a little postmodernist. Human nature? Well, now let me see. Heath Wallace go, 
Would it be cool to have sectioned off tribes of about 20 to 50 people spread out all over instead of huge cities? Yeah. Like, still have the internet, technologies, etc., but have people born in these tribes could have some serious accountability, security benefits, while also bringing us back to one another and turning down the pollution and confusion so many of us seem to be stricken by. Heath, that's the sort of thing I'm into, mate. There's going to be some administrative challenges, and there are some resources, technological, in fact, that require infrastructure and centralisation. I don't know why this acid reflux is turning me into Michael Kate, but it seems to have done just that uh, I agree with you mate tribes 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 but we also need hospitals 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 and then we have to look at the states are all in militarisation and policing which some would say is just about the maintenance of the uh, capitalist commodified state uh, Steve one day ago oh no this Steve one day ago <laughs> another great interview love Bruce's work hey Russell can we see Jen introduce her to everyone Steve, if you did see Jen, the last thing you'd want would be to ever see her again. I speak from the perspective who has seen Jen since she was a little boy growing up in a village in Ireland. Uh, Jen, how old are you now? Are you 27? 29. You're 29. Jen was a kid, ran the fan site when I was just a boy, when I was just a young, fresh-faced kid presenting Big Brother's Big Mouth. And now Jen works here at what I like to call the Russell Brand Commune, <laughs> creating wonderful content. You can yeah, have a look at her, Jenny May Finn, have a look at her on Twitter or Instagram, do what you like. I mean, Jen edits this video, she can leave this in if she wants, or cut it if she wants, she's a free person. Right, uh, and anyway, Steve, there, yeah, so there's Jen for you. Um, okay, so, oh, Jesus, I can't believe this. I'm coming to Australia and New Zealand with my new show, Recovery Live. Tickets go on sale this Monday, the 16th of December at russellbrand.com. So get your tickets. I'm going to be all over them countries, even places that don't even seem to be real, like Canberra and Wellington. Not even real. I'm only joking. I'm coming all over Australia. I'm coming all over your New Zealand, man. We're going to have a good time. We're going to bring all sorts of comedic enlightenment, the divine trickster spirit, letting rip, helping you reorganise your your own consciousness and your own crazy balmy little life by accessing aspects of yourself you didn't even know were there like a emotional g-spot baby what? what's wrong with that the man's one's up the bottom <laughs> all right that's old behavior now uh, have a look at my youtube channel for more spiritual videos and all that sort of thing and let's get on now with professor paul dolan you've listened to enough of this stuff you've all got homes to go to psychiatric homes Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. All right, Paul Dolan, thanks for coming on Under the Skin. Thank you very much for for um, having me here, mate. Thank you. Hackney via Hove. Hackney via Hove. Hove via Hackney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> here we or are. Hackney via Hove, isn't it? I guess. Yeah, Ove, yeah. yeah. We needn't start <laughs> including those H's. H's the yeah. Just the P D is in your case. <laughs> um, so you're head of uh, department of Prof and professor of behavioural science at the Psychological Behavioural Science School at London School of Economics and Political Science. Yeah, oh, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. How did you get there? How did I get there? You come I mean, from Hackney, eh? I do come from Hackney, yeah. I come from the East End. Uh, 
born there in the, in May '68. Mm. Um, I got there by randomness, luck. I mean, a lot of these things. Was you know, you good people at tell, school? Yeah, I was just clever. Um, I so stuff you strange. Um, I was a bit geeky, yeah. which is probably strange in a bog standard comp. Yeah, it's cooler um, now. It, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I had to learn to balance being clever with not looking too clever. Yeah. You know, because you don't want to get beaten up. No. Um, Did you get beaten I, up? I, had, uh, I got bullied a little bit, not too much. I, I was all right. I was quite chatty and sociable and talkative and funny. I think I used to muck about a little bit. Um, I had a bad stammer. Actually, no when I was way. a kid, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and well, I've I've always always had it. It's actually here now, and there'll be words that I maybe sometimes stumble over. I think once you have a stammer, you don't ever lose it completely. Um, so that was quite bad through my teen years. It's a pretty awkward teen years, really. It was a pretty <laughs> tough time, but but I was always clever, and I always knew I was clever. I, I sort of say that without any arrogance. It's just a statement of fact. Um, How did and, you know that? Um, it's a good, it's a really good question. My mum told me. Um, you got brothers and sisters. School, I've got a younger brother and sister. Um, school told me. Uh, exam results told me. Um, I just, don't, I just, I don't know. I just knew, and I sort of carried that with me, in spite of all the other insecurities and everything else that I might have had. Um, that was always there. Do, do, do you mean then that you always knew because? I've always thought I was clever, right? And um, but like, and so how I, how I, when I'm trying to track what that means <clears throat> is, I feel like I would see things differently, maybe to other kids, or I'd say things. But as much as, uh, as many times as not, people would think it was just off key what I was saying, or even stupid. You know, do you mean? I suppose like if you're cle- if you can do if you get good results in yeah, I guess I was more conventionally that. clever in that sense. I suppose by the standard metrics that we would judge people's intelligence by. I think yeah. I don't think I was as off the wall as you in that sense. I think I was just more traditionally good at being able to soak up information and regurgitate it in exams. Got good memory, but like, uh, do you agree with the definition of intelligence as an ability to spot patterns? So like, like that intelligence could even. Like if it was if an intelligent footballer would understand the patterns of play or it's intelligent really interesting, isn't it? There's lots of different types of intelligence, aren't there? And as you say, footballers can see spatial awareness really well. Um, my mum said to me um, when I suppose she thought I was maybe a bit odd as a kid in terms of being quite clever, was that you know she said Paul, a clever person can talk to anybody. Um, so that was her definition, you know, and you can put people in different environments. And they'd feel comfortable in whatever environment they were in. Um, and I think that's also served me pretty, pretty well as well. Mm. You know, I know I can, people that are right stupid, that are brilliant in like yeah, just a great yeah. social so That was her definition skill. as a social skill, I think. Um, but no, I think, I think spotting patterns is an interesting one. I mean, we, we have these traditional measures of IQ, don't we? Which, which, which you know, kind of a very narrow definition of what intelligence is. But creativity is interesting um one of the things that people say that they value and they like is creativity but if you look in schools at teachers teachers dislike creative kids most because they're the ones the oddballs that are coming up with the crazy stuff that's outside of the mainstream but having said that most creativity is actually crazy anyway (laughs) right because most of the silly ideas that people come up with actually are silly there's only a few gems 
amongst the silliness so it's kind of finding environments to manage that creativity in i guess yeah it requires a sort of an interface with the unknown i think creativity sort of and and necessarily will involve a lot of failure and unusual um, behavior and now I don't know much about behavioural science and I was thinking about what I did know and it's next to nothing and I was trying to think <coughs> where does it intersect with psychiatry or psychology what what it, what are the rudiments of is it called even behavioralism or is it called behavioural yeah, science yeah behavioural science so it's really so from an academic perspective it's interface of different disciplines where psychology forms a you know core part of that a lot of it has been the interface of economics and psychology so trying to place a behavioral lens on economic models on trying to understand how people make their decisions in markets um and um it's increasingly including neuroscience of course as we mm. have brain brain imaging um, evidence that gives us something about the mechanisms at least that might underpin some of our behavior um it's really in a nutshell understanding why human animals act in the ways they do and thinking about ways in which we might change their minds or their environments about how they act. Increasingly, we're alert to the fact that context matters, often much more than cognition. So we change people's behavior not by only or even changing their mind about things, but by changing the environments and context within which they act. Wow. I mean, what are notable studies or narratives or tropes that demonstrate that well, that, that idea there? So, you know, so if you um, think about whether I don't know, people are going to um, save for their old age by having a pension, right? You can do lots of different things to give them education and information about their pensions, about whether they ought to and how much. Or you can make it either an opt-in or an opt-out pension policy, right? So either you have to actively say, I do want to save for my old age, or I actively say, I don't want to. We previously had an opt-in system where you had to actively sign up to saving for your old age. Now we have an opt-out system where you're defaulted into having a pension and you have to say otherwise. That leads to you know orders of magnitude more people saving for their retirement when they face the default of being opted in that's that's an example of how context matters have how the environment that within which people act drives their behavior we're basically lazy we want to go with the flow of preset options yeah you design those preset options in a certain way you get more likely you're much more likely, likely to get people to act in those ways but it shows how that need not necessarily be benign i mean the pension example you're citing is one where it's like oh well let's help people because daft buggers that they are they'll eat both the marshmallows immediately <laughs> rather than delay the gratification right, for 10 right. marshmallows but you can easily go hold on a minute if we only give people information that makes them frightened they'll always vote conservative or something like that no without doubt and that's um you know, it's a really interesting... Well, of course, firms and organisations are doing this all the time to you, aren't they? Oh. I mean, you go into a supermarket, you smell the fresh bread. They mm. haven't even got a fucking bakery. What is <laughs> right? that? They're just sticking it in the vent. They're sticking the smells in. <laughs> <laughs> and they get you to buy more stuff, you know, where they place the products. Um, you know, life is, life is really like one big supermarket. We're constantly facing this choice architecture, as it's called in the academic literature. Um... We're constantly facing this choice architecture that nudges us to act in particular ways, often in ways that we're unaware of. 
Yes, and like you see earlier on, you said like that psychology is a sort of a core component of behavioural science. And then the next thing you mentioned was economics. And yeah. uh, do, do you have uh, concerns about the impact of industry, marketing and financing in the scientific field and the uh, influence and biases that that could create and the challenge to objectivity that that would create? Without doubt. I mean, it's an interesting, it's a very much a double-edged sword. I mean, I'm actually trained as an economist. That was my, that's what oh. I did my PhD in. Um, and it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, kind of, we want resources to conduct research. <laughs> so if some benefactor or a company is willing to, to pay us, that's great. But at the same time, we need academic independence and freedom to be able to produce research findings that speak to the evidence and not speak to what the client wants. So, yeah, um, that's sometimes. And that's probably does the majority of funding come from there? Um, from like no, so there's a lot of most academic funding comes from research councils. So in the social sciences, we have an economic and social research council that you bid for grants from that fund your research activity. But our faculty posts at LSE and other institutions are paid for primarily through teaching so so we run undergraduates masters programs oh, right, so the students. and the student fees mm. pay for our salaries basically with thank you with like um you know where you said like how uh, the, the the you know the choice what's it called choice choice architecture and we live in a kind of a sort of a supermarket like that, in a sense, unless the, the unless the findings of a study will be of economic value, they're unlikely to be pursued. You know, I know that your sort of field of well, personal interest and like the the books that you've written, your current book, Happy Ever After, talks about sort of you know about the mythologies around happy and the type of lives we're supposed to be living and that's a continuation from your previous book happiness by design so you're Correct. interested really in sort of um innocent personal well-being I'm in human welfare i mean that's really what i'm interested in i'm interested in being able to use behavioral science not only but you know use some of those lessons and tools to enable people to lead better lives as they define it for themselves it's not as i you know, dictate um <laughs> yeah that's out of order <laughs> yeah well you know sometimes we sort of you know <laughs> can't help personally getting involved in that can we to some degree uh -huh. but um you know to 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 allow them to design their lives to make their own supermarket <laughs> yeah. in a way that makes it more likely that they're going to pick the right items off the shelves mm. would um like for someone like me who doesn't know much about behavioral science are like the stanford and milgram experiments like examples of study in yeah behavior? they're really interesting psychological experiments in the days before ethics approval <laughs> which you'd <laughs> never get ethics approval to do those experiments now tell us a bit about them experiments like um, uh, and like well, sta say I mean, stanford or yeah i mean the principle or, or or even milgram's ones i mean um the ones actually that was was interesting that you just touched on i think this is going to be a nice segue into um conversation was the marshmallow experiments if you come across those right yeah. so basically kids um are given a marshmallow a, a nice treat and they're told you can eat that or if you wait a bit a second one will come along and you can eat both right and then they watch the, whether the kids eat one or wait and what they show is that kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds eat the marshmallow are more likely to eat the marshmallow when it's put in front of them and not wait for the second one they also then show that they go on to do less well in exams and things that they can measure later on in their childhoods compared to the kids who are able to delay gratification. 
So the suggestion was then that if you can delay gratification, you're going to be more successful, right? Well, a couple of things about that. First of all, working class kids come from resource scarce resource scarce environments. There's an example of my stammer, by the way. Um, and so in a resource scarce world, it makes sense, doesn't it, to eat the marshmallow when it's there because you don't know if you're going to get a second one, right? Also, you might be in an environment that's less trustworthy, right? So someone's saying to you, just sit and wait, second one come along in a minute. You say, yeah, I've heard that before, <laughs> right? Your dad will right? be here in a minute. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right, right. And uh, they don't say when the second one's coming. Like, just wait for it. Well, what, how am I waiting, yeah. right? So actually, when you look at, so the environments that working class people live in, they actually, a lot of them, on the face of it, when we look in from the outside, behave irrationally or you know with very high time preference rates that is to consume things now but actually given the scarcity of the environments they live in that's a rational response it's interesting that those markers though i mean i don't know how in depth those studies are but it's that subsequently these subsequently kids... we've controlled for these other things mm. and those effects largely disappear oh really yeah yeah um, when you control for the trust and the certainty you know, and all the things that are different about working class and middle class worlds. And so I sort of touch on it a bit in the book because, you know, a lot of how we judge behaviours of other people is according to how we think they ought to behave from the lens that we're using to look at them through. And that's typically a middle class lens. Oh, that's the dominant That's lens. the dominant narrative, isn't it? I see. Because... because though people from those backgrounds uh, have more prominent media voices for example yeah and also if you take one of the narratives in the book i'm talking about success right you know you're expected to be ambitious and to want to advance yourself but in def in ways defined by the middle classes right um to go and aspire to do jobs yeah. that are valued um which well first of all it tells you that what you're currently doing isn't you know right or good enough or you're not worthy if you're doing just a menial menial job you need to aspire to something that's more status driven um it then enables people who then become successful to then distance themselves from those that aren't right i mean you don't see very many working class heroes because working class people psychologically and geographically distance themselves from the working class that they once were Right, because they then say, "Well, actually, look, if I've managed to pull myself up, you can too." Mm. Right. So actually, it's a bit like smokers. The most, the people that judge non, the people that judge people that smoke most harshly are ex-smokers, not non-smokers. Right. <laughs> because if I've stopped, they can. Yeah. Well, those people are different. The kinds of people that can stop are different to the kinds of people that don't. And the same with the with um, occupational success, which is really what we mean. We mean about getting better jobs higher paid jobs that we judge more highly um, is that well if I've done it they can and if they don't then I can you know look um, down on them to some degree do you um, know much about Mark Fisher uh, like he was a economist he was from working class background killed himself like uh, some time ago uh, like a few years ago but wrote about the impact impact of capitalism he wrote a book called capitalist realism about the pervasive and dominating influence of capital in all fields of life 
sort of talking about a horizonless landscape where all of our metrics and perspectives are governed by an invisible force. He expanded on Zizek's idea that it's easier to envisage the end of the world than it is to envisage the end of capitalism. And I think that what you're talking about now, about like how we unconsciously, he, he talks a lot about, uses a lot of psychological language as well, like the, how we unconsciously accept and imbibe the vocabulary and rubrics of systems that are quite punitive to ordinary people it's difficult and interesting that your own um, background is economics Mm. you know i mean your um, educational background is economics in conjunction with behavioral science because i'd be interested to learn more about the 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 impact of economics on the way that people see themselves, see the world, and regard their own personal happiness and well-being. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's another, I mean, there's another different routes into into what you just said. I think one one thing that we need to I always remind people of all the time when we talk about happiness and maybe when we talk about status and income is that you know poverty makes people miserable. I mean, that's you know categorically clear from pretty much mo- most of the evidence that we that we have. And you know, lack of social standing, complete lack of social status, like no no education at all is you know is bad for people. So in a sense, we're right to have these aspirations, right? But we just become addicted. It's like an addiction problem: mm. is that you can't have enough of it. So we observe that getting out of poverty makes us or other people in um, society happier. So then we just falsely extrapolate that mm. at each level. So I just need more and more and more and more. And if only I was that little bit richer or that little bit more successful, I'd be happy. But of course, you get there and then you need more, just like an addiction. Um, and that's and that's that's kind of how we. Li- that's the, they're the sort of narratives that we are expected to live by. And I don't know whether you've you've experienced this yourself, but if you if you've achieved something or people say to you, "What's next?" You know, what are you, you going to do now? It's like, well, what have I got to do? What have I got to, what have I got to do something next? Why can't I just be happy with what I've got now, right? Yes. And, 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 and somehow you're, I don't know, you're looked on a little bit scornfully or mistrusted if you, if you say, I'm actually doing all right. It's interesting as well that, that you know, that the sort of markers and badges of success or... Um, you know, personal growth are like from like I've not really changed. Like I feel the same as when I was a kid in Greys, or when I was like living in bed sits or living on other people's sofas, as I was for like a, quite a long time. I feel sort of the same, and I remember meeting people that were brilliant and excellent that just would have spent the rest of their life signing on or trying to make it creatively and yeah. stuff and thinking well they're not that different from people that I know that are rinsing it and earning a fortune from doing you know there is a sort of um just a lottery component to it and like it was, it's taken me till middle age really to be hit by a, what felt like a crisis but was in, probably in effect a kind of disillusionment stroke awakening where I recognised that I had tethered my well-being to external motifs and ideas that were n- not able to work for me. Like I am an addict so for me it's very easy yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
attach my personal success and well-being to the validation of others materialism approval you know and these are like subtler forms like heroin at least you can abstain from it and observe it and it's obvious but approval validation codependent relationships work what, what was it that you think made you realize that what, what happened that gave you that enlightenment as it were i feel like i had like after I was like heavily, like what felt heavily to me, involved in politics for a couple of years, like doing like a lot of online videos involved in campaigns and activism and the kind of media treatment that I received around that time, I felt it was a different aspect of fame and it was very toxic. Also, I had a relationship end and also like a, a romantic relationship end and also a work relation, like my work relationships felt very challenged and I started to regard them differently. And I said to her, like, I'm lucky because I am in a, like a 12 step program and I have a lot of support, like men that are further down the path than me and some women also, but generally men, like, um, like I spoke to someone and said, like, I feel like I could walk away from everything in my life. Like the people yeah. that I'm hanging out with, everything I'm doing, I feel like I walk away from it. He goes, yeah, that's a normal thing to feel in your forties. Like, you know. Well, it's interesting with the happiness data because some of the evidence um, on reports of life satisfaction. So this is where we ask people overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? And it doesn't really matter how we ask that question, where we ask it. I mean, in terms of what part of the world um, there's, pretty much universally a u-shape with age so people are happiest when they're youngest and oldest basically right. um, and you get to your least happy in your 40s you get into early 50s and you start coming up the other side of the curve and there's lots of explanations for that but you also see it really interestingly in primates so of course you don't ask monkeys in a zoo how happy they are but the zookeepers rate the happiness of the monkeys <laughs> And they have a U-shape. They they actually live to about 40, so they have their midlife crisis at about 20. So uh, so th there might be something actually kind of intrinsic almost in our experiences as human animals that kind of make that midlife a crisis. Do you think that a lot of our suffering, dissatisfaction, uh, uh, disillusionment, is as a result of becoming somehow detached from our indigenous condition, living essentially in a kind of consumerist menagerie as opposed to a kind of organic <coughs> anthropologically grounded system oh, i don't know i mean there is you know i mean well you fucking better find <laughs> out mate you're a professor yeah. yeah i'm sorry that that's not an adequate answer for you i don't fucking know the answer to that no so i mean um you know there's not there's i don't i don't think there's a lot of like there's a lot of romance and and uh, about you know, sort of desperate circumstances and stuff. You know, sometimes people kind of feel like if we just, you know, go back to that or something, that that's that might be more, you know, more authentic or organic and stuff. You know, but um, you know, resources that are scarce in relation to you know shelter or food. You know, there's no, there's no joy in that, right? So you know, so the capitalist system, I think, to some degree, for poverty, has done a good job. I mean, we actually managed to get lots of people out of poverty. Um, as I say, it's just that it's just that addiction problem. It just becomes an overconsumption, you know, to the extent that we're now, you know, literally ruining our ecosystem because of a desire to to want, you know, to just keep consuming and wanting more and more and more and more and more things that don't actually contribute very much towards our well-being um, that yeah. we adapt to, get used to very quickly. 
Your like your background may be comparable to someone like uh, I don't mean economically, I mean uh, academically to someone like Brene Brown, who's like uh, her. She calls on research data continually. That's what you use to that all, all the what time, underwrites yeah. your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, otherwise, yeah. I mean, I do. I care about evidence. I, I care a lot about evidence, and you know, all of what I write in the books um, is in so far as it's possible populated with research evidence from um, studies of various kinds, you know, longitudinal studies following the same people over time about how happy they, they are and things that happen to them. Um, experiments where we manipulate different things of people's context to see what happens to them when they are manipulated in some sense. And, and, and so, yeah, so it's all full of academic references, but, mm. but hopefully written in a way that's accessible to it's got to be accessible in this day and age. You got gingerbread people got on the cover, on the front. I That's know. what we want. I know, I know. But no, it is. I, I feel like I want to. One of the things that academics often do is lock themselves away in their ivory towers, um, and maybe they talk to policymakers. I mean, in fact, LSE is very good at having um, established very good links to public policy. Have you um, got them links? Personally? But I've had those links. I, I, I wrote. So, for example, the. The headline questions that we ask about happiness to monitor it in the UK, um, I wrote those a few years ago. No way. Um, you wrote the, ha the happiness yeah, I questions. Those, I wrote those. Um, You're about creating a ago. The, the, the metrics by which. Yeah, the metrics by which. What we did you use ask? Because yeah. I'd like to know if I'm bloody happy. Let's, do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to ask them? I got. Yeah. So we got four. Yes, so it's one is the overall how satisfied are you with with your life these days? They're all zero to ten scales. Um, Six, seven. Yep. Yeah, then the. Another one is about um, so that's that's an evaluative question. Then there's a question about more about you about eudaimonia, which is how worthwhile your activities are. So it's it's a it's a question. I can't remember the exact that word, word of that. Eudaimonia. It's it's a like a it's a it's a word for meaning or purpose or fulfillment. Yeah. Greek, so is it? Greek. Yeah. Yeah. Greek. Greek. Um, and. Um, so in happiness by design, I talk actually the sub the subtitle of that is finding pleasure and purpose in everyday life, and I argue that life is about finding a balance between things that you find fun on the one hand and fulfilling on the other. That lives need, and it's up for, up for us to each work out what that balance is for each of us individually. But happy lives need some balance between these twin conditions. Um, and so uh, another question asked about um, how worthwhile the activities are that you engage in. I think I do all oh, right because I'm a parent and everything. So and and I do like recovery. I reckon I'm towards eight. There. Okay, good, doing well. Thanks. And then there's a couple of questions on experiential happiness, which is basically how you're feeling. So we asked overall how happy were you yesterday, and and out, and also how anxious did you feel. So that's the two separate questions. Uh, yesterday, like I think I vacillate, man. Yeah. Like I'm all over the gaff and anxiety. Bloody hell! Like I sort of. I have a, a deal of anxiety pretty consistently, I would say. Because I've like, I, I say that addiction is obviously it's a mental health issue, right? If you have it to, to an acute degree. And for me, like that, I've had to deal with my whole life through a kind of like, you know, like firstly, chemical addictions, then behavioral addictions, and now trying to counteract those behavioral addictions with a program of living by taking continual measures that are pretty basic really they involve like prayer and meditation service of others and community they're like that's why i um have recourse to like a 
uh, anthropological yeah. kind of essence, as it were, although I, I can see how challenging those kind of words would be for someone who, with an academic background. But like, um, but what I mean to say is that when talking about um, the idea that there could be some kind of universal, not on an individual basis, but perhaps on a communal basis, and uh, not to discount progress in area, obvious areas such yeah, as technology yeah. and medicine, but to perhaps try to find a way of reconnecting, which I would say that perhaps both pleasure and purpose allude to the idea of what is it that we're, what are we trying to without simulate? Da- no, without yeah. doubt, I certainly don't like that. Anyway, you've got, listen, you've got to answer those two other questions yet. You haven't done them yet. What's out of ten? So how anxious yesterday, yesterday, and how anxious you were yesterday. I reckon I was like low four anxious six happy okay good all right well that's, it was that's a long not... day it was a bit in the evening yeah I, was I know well it's happy. not good I guess it's probably just easier to ask, ask how you feel now isn't it that's that's that's, that's, that's a lot easier question yeah. maybe in hindsight it'll have been simpler I've cheered but... up since I've been doing this quiz I guess I like quizzes <laughs> quiz, quiz don't call it a quiz not a fucking quiz it's not a fucking quiz it's serious academic inquiry it's like a phrase. it's not a quiz honestly um, so we normally so we find on the life satisfaction question that people are, lots of people say some something around a seven um, but what, what we can do with those numbers is look at what happens to those scores when things happen to people in their lives, like when they get married or when they have kids or when they lose their jobs or when they earn more money and stuff. And that's how we start showing some of this evidence on happiness. Um, but the essence thing is interesting. I mean, I, I, I talk a lot in both books, actually, about helping other people. I mean, that's actually a really good thing to do for yourself, <laughs> right? It makes you feel really good. And also, by the way, you've also benefited somebody else as a result and one of the narratives in the book is that we don't celebrate enough i don't think the almost like the selfishness of selflessness we kind of expect people to be almost self-flagellating when they help other people that you've got to you know almost have some sort of personal sacrifice to it well i wonder we don't see quite as quite as much of it as we might right if you're being judged on intentions and not on consequences, right? I'm very much a consequentialist. It's about the outcomes, right? So when David Beckham had his emails hacked, um, you know, when he, you see all this with the, when he was uh, doing all the work for UNICEF, do you see all this come out? Yeah. So he got, so he was, he's given loads, isn't he, to UNICEF. He, when I think when he was at Paris Saint-Germain, he gave all his Beckham 7 charity, you know, work to, money to, to, to them. And then um, some emails were leaked about him being a bit narked that he didn't get a knighthood. Um, and this is retro, This is after the fact. I'm sure he didn't like do this pro-sociality in order to get a knighthood. But after he'd done all this work, he thought, well, actually, it might be quite nice if someone gave me the nod and said, thank you. Um, it all then just went mad. Everyone's like jumping on the bandwagon about how all this, un- this, now the desire for recognition undermines all that he's done because it's not purely motivated. So that's a pretty high bar to set for people. Actually, not a high bar. It's a silly bar to set for people because we don't get as much. There's, you know, we do things, all the, lots of things we do, because we care to some degree about what other people think of us, and so celebrating more directly and indirectly the pro-social acts that we engage in, we'd see more of them. Yes, when you talk earlier about the the architecture of choice, I, I was thinking how we live in a very individualized culture where our kind of primary lens for understanding our own happiness is on the basis of our status and experience as individuals many theological 
uh, structures would encourage a kind of a, a transcendent perspective. And I don't even necessarily mean um, transcendence in terms of consciousness. I mean, transcendence in terms of beyond self. And like the, the if um, oh, cause I'd be interested in the data around service, because like if connection to other people and a sublimation of self and selfishness in order to serve others has uh, kind of a, an imperative, a sort of a psychological or even anatomical, biological imperative. For me, it suggests that like the the continuing architecture around the way we see ourselves and see society, i.e., that we're you know sort of competing animals competing for resources, like it is something that itself could be questioned. That that we live in climates that encourage a very particular perspective, that the, 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 the architecture around us doesn't encourage an attitude of service. And even when it is service, it's service within a particular context, e.g. philanthropy, philanthropy that can only exist as a kind of a, a side dish, a condiment to the dominant narrative of any sensible person's life, me getting the yeah. shit I want. Yeah. Yeah, so I... So I don't know whether this is this is disagreeing or reinforcing, but I mean you can see this either way. But I do think there is a there is there are you know there's very good reasons why we would wish to compete and have high status. You know we get we get better mates, um, we get recognition, we get noticed, we get things that come from recognition and from status. I do think that that it would be it would be pretty fucking difficult to organise a society where we didn't have regard for status but what we can do is refocus what status represents right so rather than it being as you said only about really consumption you know showing off your opulence and your wealth it's we we show off pro-sociality we we show off our charitable status we show off being good and helping other people you know if you type into google the world's richest, well, it's normally man, isn't it, person. Very easy to find out who that is. Type into Google who pays the most taxes. You get all the tax havens. You get all the information on where you can hide your money. <laughs> right? These things are not made visible. So so I think we, we, we sometimes need to go with the... We can, we can do both things. We can try to rewire us in some sense. But often much easier to go with the grain of human nature but redesign the conditions under which that grain produces good outcomes. Um, the grain <laughs> of human nature for me seems like a, a potentially challenging idiom given that uh, the when we set the meaning of something like human nature, it's yeah. or, or using a word like nature yeah. can inform power dynamics in a way that can be quite co complex, I think, and quite difficult. Um, and I've, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I've started to not notice. Someone probably told me that, like, in Victorian in Victorian uh, academia, because there was a lot of industrial process, the, the metaphors people used were like sort of mechanistic metaphors. <coughs> oh, the universe is a bit like a machine with cogs in it and chimneys and smoke. Now that we're beginning to understand a sort of a deeper level of cybernetics and sort of interrelating systems, our metaphors are uh, like a uh, like a you know. Oh, we start to understand the potential for Wi-Fi and wireless communication and like you know from sort of darwinism onwards the idea that there are like you know even in fact if you like the findings of darwin were biased towards competition because in a sense don't we have to like you know we're having this conversation during an election an election where likely they will return a conservative majority or a hung parliament or whatever but like it sort of seems likely there'll be because when in like it would seem that 
Um, some controversy aside that for the majority of people a, a Labour government would be beneficial just sort of statistically it seems like that and yet that m might not happen so every so all of the impediments to, to to that democratic process are part of this architecture of choice the way that we've been, the way that we understand things like human nature so sometimes when I'm thinking about the you know the pursuit of happiness the pursuit of purpose I feel like we need a, like a real rewrite on that yeah is that something yeah. that interests no, you I, in your, it, in your no, work no it totally does Russell because I think that what's that's what's led me to go from happiness by design as the first book which is you know it's 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 in the genre of books about what you can do for yourself to be happier I mean it's not a self-help book because it actually works um, but um, <laughs> it is in the genre of books about what you can do personally happy ever after is that look it's that's really difficult to do some of these things when you're swimming against the tide of expectations like the social narrative well these social narratives these kinds of stories that we're told so we talked we've touched a little bit on the stories of success and education and uh you know take education with you know one of the, one of the things is very weak associations for particularly sometimes in some of the evidence for for boys between educational attainment and uh, happiness and partly that will be because the systems are constructed in ways that mean that you have to change who you are in order to succeed, right? To fit in. It's really fit in or fuck off. I mean, that's really what we expect yeah. kids to do, yes. right? I mean, you you've, you, you can yeah, that was my test experience. to that. Yeah, right? I so, went with fuck off in the yeah. end, but it was a painful process. <laughs> yeah. So little, you know, so little wonder then if you've had to recast your identity in order to succeed, you're not going to get the returns to happiness that you might otherwise expect. But also narratives. We talked, you know, we talked a little bit about the narrative of altruism, you know, the fact that we're expected to do these things for, for, for other, for only other regarding concerns. I think that's harmful. Um, marriage, kids. These are all things that you know, again, sort of expected of us. These are boxes we need to tick in order to be fully fledged grown ups. Mm. And you know, for some people that works. I'm not suggesting that you know people shouldn't follow some stories. It would be hard to live without them, but they don't have to all be the same one. You know, and the evidence suggests that, you know, lots of single women that don't marry, don't have children, are doing just fine. And I say um, women because that's the narrative. I think it's that's a more pervasive narrative for them than it is for men of 40, say. You know, you're kind of single. It's, you're kind of, it's, a, bit, it's a bit selfish, isn't it? <laughs> and I suppose in a way it's difficult to evaluate the individual happiness of single women in their 40s free from the... Uh, social pressures to you should be married you should be procreating etc etc exactly so they're not in a neutral exactly so i'm saying something in the book that's really not controversial is that we should it shouldn't be controversial but it, but it, but it turns out that it is is to say that we should just be much more accepting and respecting of the fact that different people will lead different lives and the world will keep on turning lots of people still probably want to get married and have kids but we just want won't we just then won't judge so harshly people that don't live according to what they're expected to do by some social narrative today as i was putting up a christmas tree in the house i thought like i said to my wife i was look at us look at us doing what we're supposed to be doing no one's making me do this no one's putting a gun to my head and saying come on obey a social custom <laughs> you as the male take the more go underneath <laughs> and screw it into that base thing while your wife checks that it's straight you know like and i'm it's interesting I suppose like that for me awareness is everything or awareness is certainly as often as good as I can get to stay conscious of what my life is of what 
myths I'm acting out, what symbols I'm engaging with. I find that, you know, I am at this point in my life living what you might regard as a traditional nuclear family kind of setup, you know. But uh, and but my personal philosophy is one of like like complete non-judgment where possible, and or I'm recognizing when I am judging people that it's about me, not about them, and that I've got no right to apply dictates to other people because I don't understand the complexity. My application of universals based on my own personal experience, I don't understand the complexity of it. The more I can think about the life in those terms, the more I consider that centralized um, myths such as nation might become sort of problematic yeah. as time goes on, and I can see how one of the con consequences of um increased awareness of the of the say diversity identity politics has been a kind of reflexive return to nationalism a sort of a, an increased sense of tribalism as people try to understand that they're living in a world of complexity subjected now to all of these differences it doesn't surprise me that people particularly when it comes to the, the you know the assumed reaction or alliance of the of working class people with say for example voting brexit or moving towards the right it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. I wonder how much we can hold in terms of like, are we designed to be aware of so much choice diversity? Oh, I don't know. I mean, awareness is into. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know that even where sometimes awareness changes behaviour. Right. I mean, there's a recognition maybe sometimes that you know you're aware of yourself or of things around you, but to actually change what you do requires that choice architecture to change right if you're if you're in the same supermarket with the same shelves you can have all the awareness in the world but you're still going to buy the stuff because the bakery you know because it smells like there's fresh bread right i mean you need to you need to turn off the smell of the fresh bread <laughs> in order to change your behaviors that awareness is not it's hard work awareness to be able to then subsequently translate that into changing behavior the changing the choice architecture it's often an easier route to change in action. Very interesting. In um, like the sort of 12-step philosophy of which I am an adherent, perhaps because it is so um, amorphous and plastic, you know, it can yeah. be individually applied to various sort of forms of addiction and different types of character. It's a, a sort of an accepted idea that what you know we think that we are what we think but we are what we do yeah. what we do is important no matter what crazy shit you're thinking or what benevolent shit you're thinking what your actions are is how you will can ultimately I, be judged can i say something about the 12 because which i think is really interesting the mm. the the abstinence idea yes i mean i'd be really interested to see what you think about this because we have a narrative we've created a story around addiction being that if if well if i if i consume even the tiniest bit, that's it. You know, the floodgates have opened and I'm back off the, you know, I'm back going crazy again, whatever, for however long it takes until I <laughs> try to stop again, which is setting the bar really, really, really high on your behavior. Because the moment you do go off the bar, it's like, what the fuck, that's it. It's like the what the heck effect, right? Um, or what the fuck we would say in English. It's like, as soon as the, as soon as the floodgates open, that's it, I'm done. And the evidence on the absence programs is actually really quite interesting because actually, first of all, um, people like AA don't allow uh, access to their data, so you don't actually know what the success rates are. But there's been some uh, attempts to cobble together the data to see what their success rates are. And they're probably around somewhere between 5 and 10%. So it's not especially high. 
And I wonder whether an alternative narrative might be that within controlled and limited conditions and environments, I will consume. But I'm just not going to do it very often or very much. And actually, if we recast the narrative, that actually you could, as an addict, still take stuff and be all right, then maybe that might be more successful than abstinence programs, which set the bar so high that you can only at some point ever fail. I think that it's not that high. Now, like this is like you know, for like for me, like yeah. because, and also when you sort of talked about um, the idea of it, because my environment has changed. I've got like when I was like chemically dependent on crack <laughs> and heroin, it was sort of in a sense a, a rational response to the circumstances that I found myself in. Whether or not there's a sort of a biological genetic tendency towards addiction or not, or it was just a, you know, you could make either argument. But one thing I've noticed with myself is that. I, when I start doing something, I find it really difficult to stop, even if it's a behavioural addiction like looking at pornography. I can go months and months and months not look at pornography at all. If I look once, the next day, like that idea is so tenacious in me. It seems so alluring. Now, the other thing is like the, the sort of origin myth, as it were, of 12-step um, fellowships, of course, the anonymity of which would prohibit me from publicly saying whether or not I attended those. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah, yeah, would yeah. not do that out yeah. of respect for those traditions if I were a member. And if I'm not a member, then I wouldn't say anyway. So yeah. like, <laughs> so like um so like um but the origin myth is that the, the you know the founder bill w had a sort of a correspondence with jung and jung had this idea and which is sort of borne out in that the, you know in these communities whilst uh, I, I take your point on uh, like the you know the, the the limitations that anonymity places on sort of data capture um that it's a that the and again, this, I'm sort of intersecting personal experience with my own understanding of, course, yeah, of the of myth of these 12-step programs. That um, what people are looking for that are using, say, say let's keep it to substances, using some, sub, misusing substances to a dangerous degree is a spiritual experience. They're trying to replicate connection, uh, oblivion, transcendence. Uh, it's a, an, a technique to self-medicate and self self self-soothe an alternative methodology to dealing with these problems could be you know like that and, and indeed the solution in my personal case has been belonging to a community willingness to surrender my individual identity as much as i can willingness to let go of my self-will willingness to, to take counsel and with regard to the abstinence issue right there's a, like there's a strong belief that you know like in this sort of original literature oh um alcoholics have a particular tendency if one drop touches their lips bang they're off they're they're at the races and i sort of do sometimes feel that with whether it's chocolate pornography yeah. or heroin i do identify with that it's difficult to sort of you know to trace the genome or whatever but, but i think I, more importantly i just yeah, want to no, like, no, no, take no, no, this on, point course, to, to wind it up paul is like that what i like is i feel that the s the core of the problem in my case is this kind of belief that i am both doomed and ridden with malady but also the sole author of the solution of my problems and the very fact that if you are that i've been told you don't drink or take drugs one day at a time ever again the very fact that i'm willing to go okay 
that's like I'm no longer the same person. I've already like like you know before when you talked about balance, you know, between pleasure and purpose and stuff. You know, I thought about the degree of asceticism that's required in my own life, and I'm by no means an extremist. You know, I'm bloody like I deny myself a lot more pleasure than previously, but like um. Is that that, that I um, for me the bias has to be towards purpose and away from pleasure because yeah. pleasure I don't handle well I get right in there with the pleasure and I can't put the stuff down so it's sort of in a sense it's about replacing this external stimuli response pattern with a kind of contained inner connection which is very difficult I think to achieve in a society that's constantly trying to make you consume. I get all that. I completely buy all that. I, I just the thing I was wanted to jump in was that mm. was that when you said about about yourself and about yeah. the 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 story that you have about yourself, that could be constructed by how society for all the reasons and all the arguments that you put before about capitalism could just be another construction. And that's 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 what's interesting is being able to discern the stories that are constructed for us yes. about how we ought to live from ones that are I don't know some, something authentic and, and, and meaningful f- to ourselves individually yes and but so much of it is about an authentic personal connection and and uh, what I agree with you see like the, there's the abstinence versus harm reduction argument and yeah. say someone that I really admire and respect like Gabor Mate says like he's dealing with such extreme like he's a clinical psychiatrist and deals a specialist in addiction and he says like and I went and checked his place in Vancouver where they have um, shooting galleries and all that kind of stuff and like for me like the same way as I'm like I'm vegan but I know people that hunt and I'm like I'm not like what you hunt <laughs> I recognise that you know people are different yeah you know like well that's the important point and, that heterogeneity in people yeah and yeah and that's when you get these one size fits all stories like this works for me therefore it's got to work for everyone else and that's the only that's universal the that I would like that you know that I would go to the wire on is that people are trying to access some universal experience people are looking for something and we don't find it in the same way this is what I would argue but like you know so like I would never like when people when there's a requirement for harm reduction I would say that's that's cool but Again, why would you want to dabble in heroin? Why would you want to do heroin or crack once a week or have an occasional drink if there is, if if you acknowledge that deep down what we're looking for is meaning, purpose, things that are very difficult to contrive or access in a culture that's in a sense defaults to nihilism so that it can continually designate those kind of impulses into consumer purchase and uh, external attachment. Well, I agree with you to some large degree about the consumer purchase and and the detachment, but we are also you know compelled to enjoy ourselves in a pleasure fun sense i mean there's nothing there's nothing wrong in that <laughs> i agree but like say for if we take the example of sugar you know like the, our pleasure responses around sugar uh, have evolved in situations and circumstances where sh- where there is scarcity of sugar now there is a, in the societies that we're talking about western anglophonic whatever cultures there is uh, too much bloody sugar and we're and like perhaps it's the same with say the sexual impulse you know perhaps there would be scarcity of sexual ep- opportunity and that's why sex is so rewarding now if you find yourself you know with porn in your pocket 24 well, 7 i mean dating apps are really interesting i'll talk a little bit about that in the oh, book yeah. as round yeah, about dating me. i mean it, it's it's um you know in principle of course it's opening up a world of opportunity that you previously didn't have you know in you know bygone age we would have would have married someone within about three blocks of where we lived. Uh, maybe we might have met someone at work, randomly in a pub or on a bus or something. <laughs> there would have been like five people that we could have met, or six yeah. people, and there would have been, we'd have to choose from them. But so, so the idea that we've got this kind of opportunity set that's increased is, on the face of it, a good thing. 
but you get a choice paradox, right? Because of course, then it's that there's too much choice that there's almost no choice at all. And in particular, what apps do is that they commoditize people. I mean, literally, literally, you sit there with your phones. I mean, I say this as an old person who actually, th- you know, I suppose, had to actually go and chat people up and suffer all of the social oh, the rejection. <laughs> the, oh, the rejection! I have to face all of that. But um, sit there with apps and literally swiping people away like a pair of shoes because because of some physical attribute that in five seconds they don't like um and then i think i think i've read somewhere that uh and again i don't have validated this evidence is i try to substantiate most of my evidence on good science but about a quarter people on tinder are in relationships no so way. they so they're on there what are they doing in there looking for upgrade. other people well upgrade um interestingly i think that what happens Adultery. is that, well i think that the women that are on um those sites that are in relationships do have sex um with other men because they want the variety of the sexual experience um the men often a lot of those don't and it's a validation almost it's like well i could if i wanted to as a sort of ego massage thing um which is pretty interesting but because you know the, the again we can strain women's sexual behaviors in particular i think by the notion of um i mean they you know women want a a variety of sexual experiences um and often with more than one man um so often when husbands will say my wife's gone off sex they should really finish the sentence with my wife's gone off sex with me (laughs) do you think that that's specific to (laughs) sex or gender um, the, w- w- like losing interest in a monogamous relationship. Um, do I think it's particular w- to women? Uh, no, I don't. I don't know that it's particular to women. I think the narrative is that it's not. I mean, that's you know that 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 um, as a, as a, as I say that that idea that actually women sort of have gone off sex. Um, they haven't actually gone off sex. They've just gone off sex with that man. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a pervasive narrative. I mean, the variety. So some of the latest evidence on uh evolutionary psychology is 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 that obviously we want genetic diversity um and maybe in our offspring within the same woman right so basically um a woman will have a child with one man and then for genetic diversity there's advantage in having a child with another man um and you can actually get some suggestion of this by looking at the 2D, 4D ratio, which is the ratio of the length of your second finger and your fourth finger. So if you hold your hand up, yeah, see, so you've got, you've got your, I always get these in, the, what the names of these 2D, 4D mixed up, basically your pointy finger and yeah. your ring finger. If your ring finger, uh, look at the ratio of your ring finger to your pointy finger, that's a measure of in vitro testosterone so how much testosterone you were exposed to in the womb and people that have a higher ratio so your so your um ring finger being longer than your pointy finger which yeah. yours is yeah you're exposed to very high levels of in vitro testosterone um, makes you more likely to um exhibit sexual behaviors that are promiscuous that are more accepting of um, infidelity in relationships, no. all these things, and it's no. obviously not you. You're an exception that proves the rule. Yeah, it's weird. Um, it's weird that you even and, say and that. And actually, that when you do this measure of in vitro testosterone on men and women, and you, it looks like there's a bimodal distribution. 
which basically what does that means mean it means that it's means that there's two separate distributions almost right they're, they're, it's not a normal distribution it's basically you've got people sort into one of two types nice. basically so put really really crudely i'm doing this a huge disservice but this is what i talk about in the book to some degree is that you men sort into cads or dads <laughs> right and women sort into mothers or lovers <laughs> right so the proportion of of dads in the pot of cads in the population is about 57 percent ish and the proportion of dads is about 43 percent so there's more cads than dads right not that surprising perhaps what's really interesting is the proportion of mothers and lovers which is almost 50 50 it's like 53 percent mothers 47 percent lovers which means that that significant proportion of women are more likely to be promiscuous in a sense right they're more likely to have sex outside of marriage um, and therefore more likely to have offspring with men that aren't the fathers of, who think they're to be the fathers of their children for genetic diversity reasons. So there's sort of evolutionary advantage in that, in essentially being promiscuous. I mean, that's kind of, you know, yeah, that's sort yeah. of to put it in a really, sort of put, I've put all this really crudely, but but that's that's the point. That basically that we should, that women are more, you know, that they're, they're kind of more likely to cheat than we kind of accept in some sense and and men and and a lot of men too interesting that that's the, the uh, wedding ratio. finger interesting that that's the one we've Which elected one I was pointing to at you like be that. it is the wedding finger yeah, yeah the yeah. one that we make the bond on this See, is because this has been shown there's lots of really good data on risks on people's um likelihood of taking risks of their uh the extent to which they value things now versus later influenced by that 2d 4 ratio it's reliable data it's not like a modern phrenology no no it is a it is a reliable data set i mean there's lots of data on this now but um but that just speaks to one of these myths around um monogamy for example it's also interesting for us to measure some like a force such as evolution which is obviously by its nature been taking place over hundreds of millions of years mm. and with our species for a few species yeah. for a few hundred thousand years like in a post-agricultural environment subject to so many conditions for which it cannot possibly have aligned for us to look at sort of the nomadic tribal people behavior compared to late capitalist behavior it's hard isn't it when we're even when you're talking about that tinder thing and the ongoing commodification of human yeah. relationships the commodification of sex the commodification of everything and that's why i feel that there needs to be a sort of a considerable uh, a kind of an ideological da dam <laughs> like a, a sort of an, a, a, a new ideological perspective because i sort of feel like that without clarity we are going to be subject to some really powerful and dominant like we're already subject to powerful dominating ideology we're already living in sort of an immersive experience through which we're encouraged to define ourselves through the way that we commodify our lives and i feel that without something that a, a radical alternative to that particularly as this enters its end game both from an, uh, an from an inequality perspective and an ecological perspective we need some alternatives well you know no doubt about the inequality and the ecological perspective and one thing that we need to i'm going to say two things but one thing that we need to do is to better align what we need to do for the environment and what we need to do for inequalities. That's that. That's the fundamental misalignment at the moment, to my mind. Is it? I think it is. Why? I, well, I, th I think it is because if you look at if you look at what's required by the pressure groups like Extinction Rebellion, a lot of those costs are going to be disproportionately borne by poorer people. So at the same time, 
us doing that, we need to be addressing the inequalities. Like, if we all need to replace our boilers, <laughs> right? Well, that's going to cost poor people more, isn't it? Right? So we need to address the inequality challenge at the same time as addressing the environmental one. That's, that's fundamentally Yeah, true. you're right, you know, because even you though know? that... Um, that taxation deal that was going on in France and the Gilets Jaunes it was like working people are like yeah. fuck all this green yeah. bullshit yeah I mean I'm right. simplifying it yeah <laughs> <laughs> they would have said it in which French is, which, is, which is what I've been doing for the last <laughs> hour anyway so so that so that's one thing is, an, uh, is a clearer alignment of what's required to address environmental considerations require addressing inequalities that's that's it but the point I was going to make about the ideological perspective, or or a, or unless a new the state or energy companies had to pay for all those boilers, as well, necessary. We, yeah, I mean, the financial. Post- we can do a lot through this through capital markets. That's really what we should be incentivizing greener consumption. But um, the ideology thing is, I, I find I find it challenging because for me, what I want to talk about in the book is 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 an acceptance of heterogeneity, of variance, of difference. You know. I mean, I really crudely put this 2D, 4D stuff earlier, but that just is another example of difference, that there are people that are, that are more predisposed to act in particular. It doesn't make anything, nothing's entirely deterministic. I wasn't saying that earlier, but, you know, there's a kind of propensity, a greater likelihood of people like you to act in certain ways. And there's other people would act in other ways. And like, why are we, why are we trying to fit? Why are we trying to fit the whole richness of the human condition into one size fits all model whatever that model is whether that comes from god whether it comes from somewhere else why why do that why not just accept the fact that there's a lot of difference <laughs> i suppose because when people are reliant on individual agency they are subject to insidious invisible forces that continually govern and determine the kind of lives they live through powerful cultural artillery such as the marketing and advertising industry which I would say are more responsible for the way that people see themselves now i.e. Sort of, whether it's body image or what it is to be a man you know, the, the, like, and, and, I, and I would say that having, an, like, having a, a, a sort of a concept of a, a universal or an universal for me would be like gives people I, I suppose a sense of essence a, a, a way of uh, countenancing the kind of default nihilism which is an accompaniment to a, a, a culture that tells you that all you are is all you can consume and, and all you can achieve. Now, any ideology necessarily uh, requires a degree of um, plasticity because, other, because, of course, yeah, what I consider to be a good life is different from what other people consider to be a good life. I would say sort of a, sort of a perspective of non-judgment becomes integral and a kind of... Mm, it's difficult to, for me to marry, the same as you said with the inequality ecology thing, it's difficult for me to marry the idea of um, um, centralization, decentralization, which I consider to be integral, and regulation. That's the, for me. That's where I find myself sort of somewhat baffled. I know that you know how do we tackle um, global corporate monoliths without some kind of centralized opposition? But as soon as we have a centralized opposition, this limits and controls the individual choice necessarily. I feel that we need some kind of confederacy of anarcho-syndicalists where if some people want to live in a like a Muslim fundamentalist kind of culture, then that's all cool. If over here we want to just yeah. be an entirely gay culture, cool. No one can control anybody. Like, How can we all unite well, under one flag that. I think I think your non-judgment comment is critical there isn't it i think that that's it allows those flowers to flourish different blooms whatever you know if if we have a non-judgmental 
perspective on others and one thing one, one thing that motivates the book is i just find it so fucking interesting how much people care about how other people live their lives yeah when what they do when, fucking business. when when what they do doesn't actually really matter to you and so what you know why is that well i've got a number of reasons that i out, 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 outlined in the book but but one of them i find really interesting is maybe a bit of jealousy mm. right so I love this um, study where they categorise people into essentially men into homophobic and less homophobic, more or less homophobic groups. And then they showed them gay porn, and there was more penile blood flow in the homophobic group than there was in the non-homophobic group. Right. So I mean, I really care about people being gay. I hate the gays so much because actually, I I wish I could be, and you know, society or God or whatever tells me that I can't, and that's why I care so much about them. Um, yes. Or, or, or maybe I'm. Um, I see happiness as some zero sum game. If, if they're happy, and that must mean that I'm not. Yes. Or actually, fundamentally, probably you're not very happy if you care about. I reckon other you're right. If you, if you are happy, then you, you don't. Not you don't care. care That's fundamentally it, I think. And of course, I suppose that the interesting because you are a behavioural scientist that our behaviour, our actions, our structures, and our cultures must at some at some point have been a reflection of an inner state activity that's happening on the level of consciousness new and emergent ideas so it would make sense to me that if you have a strong disgust response to yes. sort of homosexuality for example that it's caught like that you are having an anatomical biological response to it that you're perhaps misinterpreting and trying to manage and control I where else and I do is. think it also comes from social dominance. That's 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 the thing. Like, so we like lots of people like hierarchies and structure and organisation, right? So it's one of the reasons I think it's really interesting that as we've seen the world become the world, no, let's say let's say the UK become increasingly progressive, right? We we're more accepting of homosexuality of 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 things that in the past we would have been much more concerned about. But marriage and infidelity has remained pretty much constant really yeah like our judgments of infidelity and, and also our uh, aspirations to be married so haven't, haven't really changed very much and it might be that as the world is more chaotic around us at least we've still got this to cling to because like where would we be if we if we lost is that it must be if we didn't have mar- it's I've my, never I'm turned really the phone so, on no, why is it on sorry it just went off I'm really sorry we can I handle that vibrated out um so yeah, like we've still got that take sort it, of take it. We've still got that institution to cling to. Yeah, we've still got marriage, and I think that 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 that's that's part of it. And also, of course, it comes back to this class thing again that we talked about earlier. That I don't mind. I don't mind you becoming successful as a working class person, but you better become middle class in the process, because then you can join our club. You see, if you play by our rules, we'll let you in, but you can't retain any of your behaviours or your attitudes or values as a working class person because that's a threat that then becomes a system threat you see so basically what we do at universities and you know um, LSE is a really good institution for widening participation we've done a really good job of that getting people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the LSE and now we're increasingly alert to the fact of allowing them to be themselves when they're there because it'd be a bit sort of it almost like be a bit we're not waste of time, but if you take working class undergraduates and turn them all into middle class graduates, it's kind of like, what have you done? What you are know? the, um, may I ask, markers or characteristics that are 
ex- or exclusively or even particularly working class and what are the behaviours that would have been limited or <coughs> well, swearing's one. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, that's a dialect. <laughs> yeah. Swearing's one. I mean, I talk about that in yeah. the in the uh, introduction to Happy 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 Ever After, where I got berated for swearing on a panel discussion. And I've, I've we've used fuck quite a few times, but you know, it's most of the times it's been it's really always been on emphasis, right? Mm. Use it as a means of emphasis. We're not swearing at each other. We're not insulting each other. Right. We're, we're emphasizing what we're saying and. Swearing is, there's no evidence to show it's a sign of low IQ. There's no evidence to show it's a lack of vocabulary. Um, there's evidence to show it's socially engaging. There's evidence to show that people, you know, listen to you more when you when you swear in a, in a, in a way that's like, like we've been doing. But yet, <laughs> you can't do that. Mm. So there's lots of these things. Like, you know, David uh, Foster Wallace talks about how in his experience in academia that he has to necessarily teach African-American students to speak in a second dialect, which is called standard in America, standard written English, SWR, but may as well be standard white English, SWE, because yeah. that's what it essentially is. And he says you may consider it unfair that you're going to have to learn a different dialect. But I suppose, you know, that that is applicable to class as well, that there are sort of sl- there's slang accents uh, and, and yeah, use of expletives that are, in a sense, a kind of dialect. I notice that when I, when I talk to people from various class backgrounds, I either lean into the one they have or lean back into my own previous one, depending on, I suppose, how I want to connect to that person. Like, I speak different dialects within I English. I found it really interesting when I did the audio book for this one. He's tried to and speak I those. reckon now. Well, you know, I reckon that when I was talking about class, I became more. That <laughs> 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 was like an automatic response. <laughs> yeah, that's very, very interesting, isn't it? I like just done this film, and I had this brilliant um, voice coach because oh, the yeah. film that I've just done, I speak standard received oh, uh, pronunciation. It's the nineteen thirties as well, so it's particularly RP. And um, he told me this dude. That the voice is uh, like he's very very brilliant. What was his name? Um, Jock. Um, Joe. He's called Joe, right? And he, he taught me. He does the voices at Rada. He's a very beautiful bloke, actually. And he said said that the voice before it emerges, and I I saw this as an equivalent to sort of essence or soul or nature. Call it what you will. You started talking like it this could. Now. Uh, doing it now. Yeah, I'm into it. He goes <laughs> like it could go. Bef- it could go any direction. He said, but then there are all these mitigating and influential factors that come in that and he said he talked about how people from different class backgrounds might restrain not move the jaw very much because you're used to talking in a way we don't want other people to hear you or accents that indicate that you are not don't feel that you deserve to be heard the more that he broke this stuff down the more beautiful and poetic it became and in in some cases made me feel quite angry when thinking about my own vocal attributes and habits being an indication of a cultural background and having a sort of a clear psychological corollary and that voice somehow is to do with soul the relationship between voice and song and voice and connection and voice and vibration this ghost that's within us the voice he talked about like how you know, so like that, you know, that goes, he goes, if you have some some people whose voice sounds like a, a barrel of lard rolling down a hill, I'm used to being heard. What I say is important. <laughs> I deserve to be listened to. Oh, that's a very different kind. All right, mate, how's it going? <laughs> like, I mean, you've got an incredible vocabulary, though, haven't you? I mean, you've got a richness um, oh, to the way. Um, but you do, but I say but, it's and. You do speak very fast. Mm. And stammerers speak very fast because they want to get mm. the words out. Mm. But working class people speak really fast as well mm. because 
we got because we can't use up all the space and time, yeah. can we? You better you know, get this out. out. No one's going to listen. No, get it yeah, out of there now. Know, I better get it out. They're listening. They're listening. They're listening. And you, you're like, you have this richness, but it's like a million miles an hour. Yeah. And, 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 and I've noticed with a lot of um, upper class people, they speak very slowly and very measured. And it's kind of, yes. I'm going to take a very long time. Hello. Because I can. That fucking pisses me off. <laughs> You're just like, hurry up. Come on. Get on with it. I get the idea. Get on with it. Get to the point. It's like listening to academics talk. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is it like one? someone told me that that world of academia can be quite petty? Like people haven't, he said, like, oh, people have an argument for 10 years over a line in Milton. Yeah, you know, like Sayers Law, and, and I think also Kissinger said it, people have said it in various ways, but the vitriol with a discussion is inversely proportional to how much it matters. <laughs> Um, and, and a lot of academia is like that. <laughs> we have very big discussions about things that actually don't matter very much. But I have I have noticed, I'm really struck by the sense that people have of the ownership of space and time, you know, sort of talking. And, and, and you know, you'd be at a conference and you've got a set amount of time. It's all, everyone signed this contract implicitly that I've got my 20 minutes and someone else is on after me, right? So if I'm talking longer, then I'm eating into their yeah. time, right? But people just keep going. And then like and then like the chat like you, you feel rude if you try to stop someone talking for longer than they've been allocated. Klaxon. Drives me fucking mad. <laughs> That's enough out of you, mate. That's your It's 20. like but they might be talking about something like compassion or or virtue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or sharing. They might yeah. be talking about how, the power of sharing and they're using five minutes of my time yeah. while they're doing it. Oh man, that, that pisses me off because uh, that, you know in some twelve-step situations there's like timing and people going like sort of saying like it's three minutes. That's what you're allowed in certain right. ones. And people were talking about like um, you know this program has taught me to consider other people's feelings and uh, is more important than mine. The alarm goes off, and uh, as long as I'm prioritising myself above others, I can never be happy. Shut the fuck up, then. What, and what is it? How do they do it? It's the lack of awareness, isn't it? It's got to be, in it? And the sense of entitlement together. I mean, sometimes one or the other, but the, but the sense of entitlement, that's one thing that just still drives me drives me insane. Plus, much of people's actions must be uh, undertaken unconsciously. Do you know anything about that study that I think I heard on the Sam Harris podcast where he said that they did these tests where they asked people about politics and had the stink of rubbish in the room and when there was the stink of rubbish in the room, people went, actually, I don't think we should have immigration. So that's all about priming. So that this speaks to the unconscious effects on our behaviour. So when I was... Um, for a while, I was seconded into the cabinet office at number ten around no uh, way. 2010. No way. It was prime minister in 2010. It was when um, Cameron came into office. Oh my god. Um, it was um, uh, the cabinet secretary at the time. Then um, Gus O'Donnell set up the behavioural insights team, helped set this up in um, n- number ten. It's, it's been since called the Nudge Unit, um, uh, which is which is essentially around you know how to change choice architectures to make it more people like, like the people save more or pay their fines or recycle or eat more healthily or whatever um, and uh, what was I saying where are we going with this where did we start you was disgust disgust uh, priming 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 so we wrote this report for um, the cabinet office called Mindspace M-I-N-D-S-P-A-C-E it's a nine letter mnemonic which is a checklist for behavioural science interventions and the P is priming so essentially we respond to unconscious cues in our environment right most of the time you're 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 largely and you're largely ambivalent about what you do right for many things there's lots of costs and benefits and it's hard to know which way to go so you take cues in your environment 
about what to do. So the same in this, you know, study politics. Well, I don't really know what I think about it. Oh, stinking rubbish, stinking <laughs> policies, right? So you you hear words or sounds. There was a really good study um, looking at hand washing in hospitals. If you pump citrus lemon smells, which is an olfactory smell, there's a nice clean smell. More people people are more likely to clean their hands. Um, if you uh, if you're primed in with with words or with sounds or colors if you're prime with lighting right so um give overpay students in an experiment and then look at whether they they're honest and say oh you've over you've overpaid me single biggest factor predicting whether they return the money or not is how bright the lights are in the room when they're doing the experiment these things are these well, things, if it's bright they, if it's will, bright, they will give the money back they yeah. can be seen high visibility exactly. but exactly. so these exactly. biological factors so these are things that influence so us the brain of the body is bigger than the brain of the individual yeah, ego we're just taking all these cues um and what's really interesting about all of that many things are but one of the most interesting things is that we don't know right so when you if you were to ask the students why they gave the money back or why they kept they it they will retro narrative they will give you a nice post-doc rationalization well, I just never it's, i'm just the kind of person that always gives exactly, money exactly 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 when actually it's activated by whether it's bright you or not. a light on you that's yeah. why yeah you scum yeah that's amazing yeah mate we've got to wrap this up because we've been talking 75 wow. magnificent minutes um your new book is called i'm telling you this you're you will certainly know this for a fact happy ever after that's a book you've written it is escaping the myth of the perfect life paul dolan thanks paul for thank coming you very much here. and the paperback will be out in january jan for those that don't want to spend December. a fortune on hardbacks it's lovely <laughs> it's nice hardback, in hardback though, though, I've got the hardback. yeah it does it feels good it, feels it does good. it does feel good but paperback out in january what are you going to be doing for the rest of your life? Oh, that's a nice simple question to finish on, <laughs> isn't it? I'm going to be finding pleasure and purpose in everyday life, mate. That's what I'm going to be doing. Pleasure and purpose. And, and I'm going to be trying to, and I'm going to be trying to do it's kind of what you do to some degree and in a more humble way is sort of prod and provoke a little bit, challenge and question myself and other people. Do you think Manuel Pellegrini's going to keep his job? Oh, mate, why do you have to finish on a miserable... <laughs> why have we done it? We've had this great talk and now we're going to... Um, well, so I... The, the evidence previously had shown that... I think the evidence had shown that managers don't really do very much, right? Actually, it's essentially the resources in the club and, and teams find their, find their equilibrium irrespective right, well, of you manager. Can see the correlative between wages and league positions. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And look at the effects of managers. I was talking to, to, to someone Spurs recently. Spurs that for a long while, innit? The Pochettino effect. That yeah. The Spurs were like seventh in wages but fourth in league. Exactly, so like exactly. So, but some of the recent evidence says that you can actually get a bounce, I think, from changing manager. Yeah. So, if we drop into the bottom three, on the basis of good evidence, I think, we should probably mm. change manager. And all it takes is a bad result against Southampton. Southampton's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big one for us. Why do we care? Why? I mean, why did we end up supporting West Ham? That's the. I mean, that's like life's fate, and it has dealt with. You Hackney, what choice you should have been Tottenham. I know, sort of Tottenham was Spurs. No, my family was Spurs. I don't. I don't hate quite. That is weird, then. Yeah, (laughs) I don't. Well, no, no. Some of my family were. Some were. Some were West Ham, and some were Spurs. My son's West Ham. Um, I'm going to say something that I know you want. That you say people say that you know that LSC prof says this, but. I really think that sons ought to support the teams of their fathers. Yeah. And as a legacy, daughters. as my a legacy daughters, and daughters. I'm giving that they're wearing West Ham stuff, but my my three-year-old is just working out that the words West Ham and football are not synonymous. She's working, <laughs> working out that there's different things because I taught her come on West Ham, but now she's starting to dislike <laughs> West Ham because she sees it as a 
a challenge to Peppa Pig or Rick and Morty or whatever it is she wants to. I know. My daughter was looking back um, at some pictures of. We, we really didn't take very many pictures of our kids as children at all, really. It's so fucking ugly. But no, uh, <laughs> we didn't. We didn't actually have very very many. But she lo- noticed one of one of the very first first photos was she was wearing this West Ham kit. <laughs> I said you just have to support West Ham. I mean, it's just what kids ought to do, isn't it? Yeah, carry the curse. It's just it's just weird when they don't. I know. Isn't it? Yeah, you, I, I will judge you as a father by what team your kids support. They're going to be strongly biased. Because <laughs> we don't direction. judge people, do we? But No, no, but on that, on this <laughs> but alone. there's one judgment that we make of other people. Indefatigably. <laughs> Thanks, man. Paul, thank thanks you very time. much. Cheers. Thank, thank you. you, Russell. That was good. Thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin with Professor Paul Dolan. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. You can follow me on TikTok now at Russell Brand or on LinkedIn. I'm Russell Brand there also. Remember, I'm coming to Australia and New Zealand with my new show, Recovery Live. Tickets go on sale this Monday, the 16th of December. Go to RussellBrand.com. Sign up to the mailing list so you don't miss out on anything. Remember, we're trying to reconfigure society. We've got to find new grids, new matrices. So sign up to that. Well, we shall be alright. You'll be right. Why you sorry up for that? You see and soldier. In the meantime, why don't you have a? I don't know who that was. In the meantime, have a listen back to some previous episodes. Angela Nagel, Wendy Mandy. That's it. And keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, produced by Charlie Briggs, Jenny May Finn. And Bear the Dog, his contribution was a little more valuable than Jenny Mae Finn's, for example. Thank you.